And, uh, and Merry Christmas before I forget to say that. I've said that to a number of you who have walked through the door. Um, it's been a long year. Uh, we're two sermons away from, uh, the very, uh, from the beginning of the new year. And, uh, as I was thinking about what to do for, uh, for Christmas Day, uh, for Christmas service, I guess technically it's Christmas Eve service. There are a number of different passages that we could have gone to, uh, and it's usually the most celebrated Sunday of the year, uh, maybe alongside Easter. But in the end, uh, the passage that I picked uh, was for this this ambition, and I, I really hope that you believe this, and I really hope that this is why you're here. Uh, I have no other goal than to make the person and work of Jesus Christ as clear as possible to you. Uh, Christmas really is about Christ. It's about nobody else. And we know that here at our church. And I would hope that as you leave the service today, that your vision of who Jesus is and what he did and what he was about and how he thought and the thought process behind Christmas would become so clear such that you would be compelled to do no other than to think the same way. And with that, open up your Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 2. And uh, Pastor Derek had read uh, the first 11 verses of the chapter, and I am going to zoom in on verses 5 through 8. And I want to read it again, and I want you to focus on the thought process, the attitude, the spirit of Jesus Christ, which you'll see was the spirit behind Christmas Day. And I want you to ask yourself, while you're reading this, as we pray, as we work through this passage, is this how you've been thinking so far during this holiday season? And is this what you intend to take as you leave Christmas service and enter into the rest of the break? Uh, So here we go. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Let's zoom in on this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Bow your heads with me and let's pray one more time and ask for the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, we do pray for this morning. We pray for Christ to be exalted. We pray for your word to go forth uh, from these pages to your people with clarity. We pray that our vision of Christ would be so clear that as we behold him, we may be transformed into his likeness, that we may honor him in the way we think and the way we live, that we may never misrepresent who Jesus is, uh, what his mindset was, and that as we consider what the spirit of Christmas is, we may keep him in the forefront of our minds, at the center of our hearts, that our affection for him may grow ever deeper. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. There was a Christmas uh, carol that we used to listen to growing up, uh, basically every Christmas season. And I remember a line from that song that I still think about till this day, because the songs that you listen to when you're in third or fourth grade are the same songs that tend to resonate in your head even as an adult. And there was a line that says, and may the spirit of Christmas be always in our hearts. And honestly, I forget who wrote the song and I forget what the title of the song that came from, but just listen to the line. 
may the spirit of Christmas be always in our hearts. And I, I do wonder if whoever wrote the song or sang the song really understood what the spirit of Christmas actually is. And maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Now, I want to ask you, do you think, in terms of where we are here in San Jose and the heart of Silicon Valley, is the spirit of Christmas, as you see in this particular passage, being lived out in our society? And if you want to know, if you want to test this out, or if you want to see just how far we've fallen, just how, just the degree to which Christmas has been downgraded from what it was originally meant to be, uh, I dare you, I dare you, right after service, right in the middle of lunchtime, I dare you to drive to Valley Fair Mall, and I dare you to try to find parking. And keep your ears open, and I want you to see, as you're watching the drivers pass you by, which finger they like to display the most, and I want you to listen to their vocabulary, because it gets a lot more expansive during the holiday season, and you're thinking, that's what's happened with Christmas. Christmas is the busiest time of the year, uh, and it's the, it can be the most difficult time of the year. I don't think it was intended to be that way, but that's what we've made it as a society, because largely as a society, we don't think of Christ. We don't think of Christ's mindset when we think of Christmas. Uh, not everything is bad uh, when we think of the Christmas spirit. I want you to think, what do you think when you think the Christmas spirit? When you hear that line, and may the spirit of Christmas be always in our hearts, And I can tell you what I used to think of growing up. Uh, There's chocolate. I mean, I've gotten so much chocolate these these last couple weeks. If I eat one more, I'll turn into chocolate. Um, I don't mind if you give me if you give me another one. That's fine. Uh, (laughs) So that's that's my Christmas list. But there's chocolate. There's gingerbread. There's gingerbread cookies. There's there's candy canes. I dressed like a candy cane today to to fit the occasion. Christmas songs are all about everything but Christ. Uh, I mean, when we were growing up, it was all about jingle bells. And the sad thing is that one of the kids came up to me and heard it from a classmate, uh, this version of jingle bells, and he sang the first two lines, and instead of jingle bells, jingle bells, he sang jingle bells, Batman smells. And the sad thing is, is I stopped him and I said, I can actually finish it, because we used to sing that version when I was a kid, it was Jingle Bells, Batman Smells, Robin Laid an Egg, Batmobile Has Lost Its Wheels, and Joker Ran Away. Hey, Jingle Bells, again. And that's how far, right, Christmas has fallen off from the Philippians 2 model. What was going on in the mind of Christ when Christmas happened? Christmas, you can try it all you want. You can proclaim peace on earth as much as you want. You will never restore Christmas to its proper place unless you have Christ exalted in his proper place. And you will never exalt Christ unless you understand what was going through his mind when Christmas Day happened. What was going on? What was the paradigm of thinking when the baby was born in the manger, when Mary swaddled him in the clothing, when she put him in the manger, when the angels were singing, when the shepherds were rejoicing, what was going on in the mind of Christ? Well, you're thinking, well, he was a baby. He wasn't thinking of anything. He was also God. I hope as a church we agree on that, right? Jesus Christ is 100% God and 100% man. And just so you know, uh, for parents with young kids, we did teach at a children's church last week that Jesus Christ is 100% God and 100% man. Uh, kids, 
<laughs> don't tell your parents I told you anything else because I didn't. I did say 100, 100, and then one of them asked, well, how does that work? And I said, well, come back to Christmas service next week and listen to the sermon. And if you don't understand it, ask your parents because I'm sure they'll be paying attention. So what was going on in the mind of the second person of the Trinity when Christmas happened? And what I want to do is we, we celebrate a lot what happened on Christmas, the events of Christmas. If you look at a nativity scene, it's mostly, it's mostly accurate. I don't know if they were, if they were really wearing red and white. I don't know if, if there were donkeys or if there were sheep or if there were whatever. whatever kind. There, could, there could have been a zebra there. I don't know. I don't know what kind of animals are in the Middle East. But what's more important is I want to unveil what was going on behind the scenes because there's usually a lot more behind the scenes than what the audience sees. You understand that as an artist, as an athlete, that's true about Christ, Christ's entire life. And that's true particularly about Christmas Day. And look at the book of Philippians here. And it starts off in a bigger section where, I, I love this book. It's the first book that I, I did get a chance to preach through um, uh, during uh, the entire book, meaning uh, for Sunday services and, and a number of sermons that I preached through. And I loved every single one of them because you could take any one of these verses and make them a Hallmark Christmas card, right? Uh, it's so dense yet so practical. It's all about the heart. It, it's joy and fellowship and the gospel. And every single one of these verses needs to be just thumbtacked somewhere on your body. And you get to this section in, in chapter 1, verse 27, and it's a broader section where you find this particular section. And it's when Paul says to the church, who God promised that he had started a good work in and he will complete it, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, if you have been saved by Jesus Christ, if you truly believe that Jesus Christ has saved you from your sins and is living in you and has started a good work in you and will complete it till the day he comes, then your life has to show it. It shows in the way you endure suffering and in this particular section and shows in the way you treat other people. Namely, people who are genuinely trying to walk in Christ are not proud people. They're humble people. They're united in their faith. They do nothing from selfish ambition. They do nothing from empty conceit, but with humility of mind, they treat one another as more important than yourselves. In other words, Christian living cannot go together with being self-absorbed, which is basically what happens during Christmas, right? Uh, they don't merely look out for their own interests. Actually, they don't look out for their interests at all, but they look out for the interests of others. That's part of what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so when you think about Christian living, before there's the Christian walk and before there is the Christian talk, because we're really good at the walk and the talk, there is the Christian thought. Christianity is more than just about Bible studies. It's more than just about prayer. It's more than fellowship. It's more than Sunday service. It includes all that, but it's more than that. It goes down to the very way that you think about yourself the way you think about other people, the way you think about God, and how that flows out and how you relate to all those different people around you based on what you understand about how Christ did the same thing. And I want you to see here the mindset of Christ. You know why I love this passage? Because it breaks down really simply. Verse 5 is the main point. Verse 6, 7, and 8 
are the subpoints. I love it. Verse 5, the main point, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, when you think about humility, you need to be thinking about Jesus. How did Jesus do it? Because Christian living is not just admiring Jesus. It's also emulating him. You can't say, well, just because Jesus did that, well, he was God. I'm not Jesus, and therefore I don't have to do the same thing. Well, in some sense, yes, you do. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, the way Jesus thought, think this way, literally in the Greek, think this way, which was also the way Jesus thought. So how Jesus thought about life and everything around him, how Jesus thought about people, how Jesus thought about his own accomplishments and who he was ought to be the same way you think about all aspects of life. And then in verses 6, 7, and 8, if you want a nice, neat outline, it's the three qualities of the mindset of Christ that you have to emulate. The three qualities. The first one is found in verse 6. The second one is found in verse 7. And the third one is found in verse 8. And again, ask yourself, am I thinking the way Jesus thought when he lived his life? on earth. Let's unveil a little bit about what was going on in his mind when Christmas day happened. And so let's look at the first let's look at the first quality. The first quality to emulate about Jesus Christ, which was the first quality that was at the heart of Christmas was his consideration of himself. Just write that down, his consideration of himself, how he thought about himself, how he thought about his worth. And what you'll see here is he had an unrivaled worth. Jesus was more than a prophet. He was more than a teacher. He was more than a good moral person who never sinned. He was someone else. Namely, look at it right here in verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God. Does the Bible ever say that Jesus Christ is God? Because people will say, well, where in the Bible does it ever say that Jesus Christ is God? It says it right here, who existed in the form of God. In other words, in his very nature, in his very being, Jesus Christ was the sovereign, eternal creator, sustainer of the universe. That is first and foremost who Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created. In him, all things hold together. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of the Father. Jesus Christ is God, which means he had all of the majesty of God. He had the omnipotence of God. He had the omnisapience of God. He had the omniscience of God. He had the omnipresence of God. He was eternal he is immortal. He had all the authority of God. I mean, think about it this way. Rome was not built overnight. The Milky Way was. He created the world in seven days. On the first day, he made all matter and made light. On the second day, he created the sky. And the third day, he created land and all the trees. And the fourth day, he created the galaxies and the stars and the seasons and the sun and the moon. The fifth day, he created the sea creatures. The sixth day, he created land animals and birds. Sorry, birds go in the fifth. And on the sixth day, he created man. I can't even prepare a sermon in seven days. <laughs> Someone asked me once, do you believe that Jesus created the world in seven days? 
It wasn't a pastoral candidacy question. <laughs> and I said, well, no, because he made it in six. <laughs> and the person went back to me and responded, oh, small mistake, right? Whenever you see a calendar on your wall, right, when you see Monday through Sunday or Sunday through Saturday, whichever, way, whichever day you start with and whichever day you end with, just remember that is a reminder to you every day that Jesus Christ zapped the world and zapped the universe into existence by the word of his power in six days. He can take life. He can give it away. No one forced him to give his life because no one could take his life unless he laid it down. He had the authority over the winds and the waves. I would love to tell the weather right now, please, just please warm up just a little bit. Because with my frame, I guess I just can't regulate my own body temperature. Please, just warm up. I never want to see rain again. And you imagine Jesus in the boat with his disciples. And waves are crashing into the boat and they say, Master, wake up. Don't you care that we're perishing? And they're afraid. And then he gets up and says, stop it. And everything stops. And they're even more afraid than they were when before, before Jesus woke up. Because they said, who in the world is this? We say weather permitting because we can't get the weather to do anything that we like. And yet Jesus, when he speaks a word, gets the winds and the waves to obey him. He was the one before whom when demons looked at, they shuddered. You have demons shuddering at the face of a carpenter. Why? Because he is the Holy One of God. Jesus is the Holy, 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 the Lord of hosts, the one whose glory fills the earth. He is the one who makes angels sing, and he is the one who makes angels cower. He has the worth that is worth displaying, and it's a worth that we don't have because he is God and we are not. And here's the question. With that unrivaled worth, what did Jesus do with it? Because he did have an unrivaled worth. And it says, and this is, this is absolutely incredible. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to. It didn't mean that he lost his deity because he never did. But the way Jesus thought about his deity was this. Even though I am equal with God, I don't have to necessarily show the fullness of it to people. He never lost it, but he was willing to put it aside. And that's why Paul says, it doesn't make sense if you do things out of selfishness or empty conceit because you don't have the glory that Jesus did. And yet, even though he had it, he didn't feel like he needed to show it. Now, I, I thought about this more uh, several years ago when I was in between church ministries. Uh, before I, I started serving here at GBF, uh, I landed a job as a chemistry teacher at a local Christian high school. And ask me how I got that job later, because I don't have a teaching degree, and I did not major in chemistry. So <laughs> uh, you pray for those students who were in that class. <laughs> and uh, after one of my classes, uh, I forget what part, of the, what part of the year we were in, but after one of those classes, um, I uh, was walking to the faculty lounge, and the custodian, of all people, comes up to me, sweet lady, uh, and said, I love listening to you teach that class. And I'm thinking, why? Um, and she goes, because I, I love chemistry. And I'm thinking, 
you do? <laughs> Sweetest lady. And she goes, yeah, that's actually what I studied in college. And I'm thinking, what? She goes, my major was in chemical engineering. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is goodwill hunting for real. Uh, I, I've never run into a situation where the custodian was more qualified to teach a class than I was. And yet, she's, I asked her, so why are you not teaching this class? <laughs> and she said, well, I love my job here. I love, I love cleaning the school for you guys. She worked another job as a cleaning lady at a hotel. And she said, I just love cleaning the school for you guys. And I was thinking, she will never get recognized for what she's accomplished. <laughs> if you even touched you know, if you've, if you've licked a drip of chemical engineering, you would know only someone with the nerve of a bear would major in that in college. And here she is, having completed that degree, and she's cleaning our school. And I'm thinking, she is okay with never having her worth and her accomplishments recognized. Sweetest Christian lady uh, that I met at that school. Now think about that. Think about Jesus. Even more, he had equality with God. And yet, he didn't feel the need to boast it. So if we're to imitate that, and you think about what that meant for Christmas, he had to have that thought process in order for the incarnation to happen. Why? Because man is not equal to God. Everyone knows that. Man is not equal to God. Man is finite. God is infinite. And so for Jesus to come in the form of man, he had to, he had to let go of the need to show everything about his deity in order to take the full form of a human being. He had to let go of a prestige. He had to let go of a prominence in order for him to live as fully human. Now someone has asked me, or several people have asked me, several times, in several different occasions. Would you ever work a job that you're overqualified for? And my answer is, you're not overqualified for anything. If the Son of God can come down and work as a carpenter, you can do anything. I want you to think about that. That is the attitude of Jesus Christ. Out of his love for mankind, the grace of God appeared when Christ did not consider equality with God, with all the authority and majesty and glory of God, a thing to be held on to and boasted about. But then he goes a step further. This is the second quality to emulate. So first, his consideration of himself. Second, his emptying of himself. In verse 7, this is incredible. He emptied himself. The kenosis, the famous passage, how in the world did Jesus empty himself? People ask that question all the time, even in seminary. So what does it mean when Jesus emptied himself, did it mean that he lost his deity? No. Well, did he put it aside? Well, yes. And so during which points of his life was he God and was he man? Did he take on different modes? Well, no. He was fully God and fully man all at the same time. So what does it mean that Christ emptied himself? The answer is right here. 
It meant that even as God, he took the form of a bondservant and he was willing to be made in the likeness of men. So when someone asks you that question, what does it mean that Christ emptied himself? Your answer is this. He came as a slave and he came as a man. No shortcuts. He came in the form of a bondservant, literally a slave. Now, when we think slaves, we're usually thinking American history, and that's not what what slavery looked like back then. This wasn't an offensive term. But when you consider who Jesus is and the level to which he went down to save people, bondservant, doulos, slave, means this, or it's referring to this. It's a person with no rights. You're owned by somebody else. To consider that the one who made the world was willing to be made one who has no rights. When you consider how Jesus was born, where he was born, a Jewish person in the Roman Empire, meaning he had no rights as a citizen, as a Roman citizen, he didn't own the land. His family didn't own the land that they lived in. He was born in peasantry. Mom and dad couldn't afford a bull for sacrifice, so they had to get turtle doves. When you consider how he was born, how he let go of those rights, they had to go to Bethlehem because they had to register to pay taxes to the Roman governor. And not only that, there was no place for them in the inn. We talked about that last year if you were there for Christmas service. There was no place for Jesus' birth even in the guest room of the house. So he had to be born in the place where they kept the animals. And not only that, he had the right, he had the right to the world. And yet he was born and placed in a manger. Now, when we sing away in a manger, we get really nostalgic. Have you seen a manger, right? It's the stone trough where the animals eat. If you put a baby in there today, you would get sued. And Jesus was born there. Yeah, I thought about it this way. Because we complain about not being able to go on vacation all the time. Jesus made Hawaii and never went. In fact, he made it in a day and never got to go. He could have, but to serve people, he never went. Is that how we think about life? Because what do we tend to fight about all the time? I asked someone this who's now, uh, you know, not a Christian, but someone who's observed the world. He's lived in three different countries. And I asked him to describe my generation. So I'm not bagging on anyone else's generation here. I'm just talking about my generation. I asked him, how would you describe us? And he said two things. One was political correctness. And two was, you're entitled. And it's true. We complain when we don't get the three-bedroom house and the two-car garage. We complain when Wi-Fi isn't up to speed. We complain when there's no air conditioning. I'm complaining when there's no heater, right? We expect running electricity to never fail. Did you know that in other countries they don't have running electricity, at least on a regular basis? We expect clean water. We expect Amazon packages in 20 minutes, and when it comes in 25, we're already complaining. We expect healthcare to reimburse us for the Zumba classes we do. We expect everything. We want the most amount of things with the least amount of work. So let's face it. 
We're spoiled. It's true. Because the truth is, we don't have rights to anything. We complain and fight for rights that we don't have. When Jesus Christ did not fight for the rights that he had. If the creator of the universe can be born in a manger, outside the inn, would the only people observing him were shepherds? We cannot demand anything from this world. Not saying it's bad to have those things, but you have to ask yourself, do you complain to God when he doesn't give you certain things? That's what's going on in Valley Fair. I can't find parking, so I need to complain. Do you approach God with the attitude of, I deserve X, Y, and Z, and A, B, and C, and every letter of the alphabet for that matter? Because understanding the emptying that Christ took as the, uh, in the form of a bondservant, but not only that, not only that, you go further, he was willing to be made in the likeness of men. To be made as a slave is one thing, but then couldn't have he been made an angel? But no, he took the form of man. And not only that, on Christmas Day, he took the form of a baby, a real baby. He was not a fake plastic baby. He was a real baby. And if you are a mother here, why were you so tired those first how many years of motherhood? Because babies are absolutely helpless. That is the hallmark of a human baby, right? Teenagers are blockheaded. Babies are helpless. They can't do anything on their own. I remember that, uh, traveling with kids, and I'm thinking, I never, ever want to travel again because you have to take a pack and play because they can't sleep on their own. You have to take diapers because they can't go to the bathroom on their own. You have to take a booster seat because they can't sit up on their own. You have to take utensils because they can't eat on their own. You have to take everything because they can't do anything on their own. And the Son of God, creator of the universe, was willing to be found in that form. And he could have, we, we talked about this last year, he could have, as a human baby, just given a glimpse of his deity. Let me fly around the manger and show everybody that I am God, and then I'll go back to sleep after that. But he didn't. Let me make the hay rise. Let me make the animals bow down. Let me do something to prove that I am the son of God. But he didn't. They swaddled him. Meaning he couldn't control his body temperature either. And Jesus didn't skip a beat when it came to the human life cycle. Did it ever occur to you? Because not much is shared about Jesus' early life. But Jesus was at one point a seven-year-old. Jesus had to go through physical puberty. Jesus had to grow and learn. Did Jesus know that one plus one equal two at some point in his life? Well, as God he did, but as man he didn't. He grew and learned. He went to the synagogue to learn about the scriptures. He submitted to his parents. He was willing to get tired. He was willing to get hungry. He was sleepy at times. When he was sleeping on the boat, when he calmed the storm, I don't think that was a trick. I don't think that was him going, well, let me just pretend and let let the storm come. And then if it does, then I'll wake up. I think he actually was tired. And when he said at the well, 
I am thirsty and I am hungry. And when he said it on the cross that he was thirsty, it's because he really was hungry and thirsty. And he was willing to get stressed at the garden to the point where he was sweating like drops of blood. He was human in every way. He did not ask for any shortcuts. When Jesus had to go from one place to another, he didn't teleport. I would, oh, I would love that. Uh, why cars? Why, why are we still in the car era? Why can't we invent something like in Power Rangers where you can just teleport from one place to the other? And Jesus could have. And you know how you know he could have? Because he made Philip do that in the book of Acts. But Jesus walked. When he had to go an 80-mile distance, he actually walked. When he carried the cross, he carried it all the way across. And he fell because he let himself get weak. Jesus was human in every way, and that is humbling when you consider who he was as the Son of God. Think about that when you think about leadership, even, spiritual leadership. I think it was Jim Elliott who said, what is this whole thing about leadership training in the church? Because every time I look at the Bible, I see Jesus teaching people how to be servants. Spiritual leadership is not you trying to grab prominence for yourself so you can tell people what to do. Spiritual leadership is following the example of Christ by being the first person to say no to yourself and what you want and giving up your rights and giving up your prominence to serve other people in such a way that you compel those around you to do the same thing because that's what Jesus did and you see it very, very clearly on Christmas Day. But then he went further, as if this wasn't enough. The first thing you emulate about him is his consideration of himself. Second, his emptying of himself. But he goes one step further. In verse 8, it's his abasement of himself. He lowered himself to the lowest possible position that a human being would ever find himself on this planet. Being found in appearance as a man, as if that wasn't enough, he humbled himself, literally he lowered, he abased himself by becoming obedient. The one with authority is now obedient to the point of death. The giver of life is giving up his life. None of you can ever come to me and demand my life from me. And if you did, I wouldn't give it to you. That's why we have these things called laws. Because America says that we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And you see here the Son of God taking the form of man And instead of happiness, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Instead of liberty, he took the form of a slave. And instead of life, he is giving up his life. It's enough to ask Jesus. It's humbling enough to ask Jesus to take the form of a man with no shortcuts. Why couldn't he have come as Adam? Born 
25 in the prime of his life, but no, he didn't. But, well, why not just a slave? Is man and slave not enough? No, he had to go even further for our sake. And I'm going beyond Christmas here, but it's the same mindset that produced Christmas that led to this. This is incredible, this passage. It has Christmas, it has Good Friday, it has Resurrection Sunday, and the end of the world, all in 11 verses. But he humbled himself even to the point of death. Think about that the next time you say, I have the right to live before God, do you? To the point of death, was he stoned? Was he lynched? Or will God call him to go down even further? Even death on a cross. Now, when we think of crosses, we think the things that we wear on, on our necks, sometimes in our ears. You have to think Greco-Roman. When they heard the word cross, no one in their right mind would carve out a cross and hang it on their neck because that was the most humiliating kind of death that a person could ever endure. That, that would be equivalent to where if you walked into this church wearing an electric chair on your neck. The life of Christ from his, from his birth to his death got progressively harder and harder. He grew up and preached and he got kicked out of his hometown. He was hounded by the Pharisees. He was deserted by his followers. He was betrayed by two of his 12, including his best friend. He was mocked. He was chained. Death on a cross had a lead up to it. They covered his face. They smacked him on the face and they said, guess who it was who smacked you? They took it off. They spit on him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They made him walk through the city. Even as he staggered, he got so weak that he had to have somebody carry the cross with him. They nailed him to the cross and they mocked him and they said, if you really are the son of God, come down and save yourself. And there he is hanging for the whole city to see next to two criminals who for the most part were insulting him at the same time. John Piper said it the best. And I'm almost afraid to say what he says because it's so real. But he essentially said this, and I quote him in one of his sermons. Jesus Christ was hanging up there like a piece of meat because that's what they intended for criminals to look like when they crucified them. That is the level of humility that Jesus Christ went to save you, to save me, because that was the death that we deserve. And would the sinless Son of God and Son of Man really go that far, do you think? Wasn't it enough that he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped? Was it not enough that he lived his life in complete service to other people? Was it not enough that he was willing to be made in the likeness of men? And was it not enough that he was willing to humble himself to the point of death? Or did he have to go that far? 
You and I all know that he did. Jesus Christ crucified. We preach that. That is why, when you think of the whole description of it, that is why it was an offense to the Jews. And that is why it was foolishness to the Greeks. Because who in the Greco-Roman mind, who in their right mind they would think, who in their wisdom, if he had the equality of God, would let himself go that far? And when you hear those words, the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Sacrifice. One life given for another. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. That is the message of the gospel. Jingle Bells does not do credit to that. Because the truth of the matter is this, that we are sinners who have offended a holy God and deserve eternal punishment for what we did. And the only way we ourselves can take care of that is if we go to hell and pay for it for eternity. But because God so loved the world, he gave, he sacrificed his only son, and in the process, Jesus had to come down and empty himself and come in the form of a slave and a man and humble himself to the point of death, even death as humiliating as being hung on a cross for hours for the public to see And if that isn't enough to convince you that Jesus Christ loves you, then I don't know what will. When people ask, why would a good God send people to hell? Let me ask you this question. How could a fair God let that happen to his son when that should have been us? So when you go home, Just put aside the chocolates for a second. Turn off the Christmas carols. And think about the emptying, the consideration, and the abasement that Jesus Christ allowed himself to go through. To pay for your sins so that whoever believes in him will not be condemned for the things that they've done, will live the rest of his life never having to face the condemnation of the Father, will secure for himself the inheritance of eternal life. Because Jesus went this far, you never will have to go there. That is the spirit of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, for who he is. And we pray that as he thought the way he thought, we would honor him in the way we live our lives. We know this is no vow to poverty or asceticism, but it is a call to humility. And we pray that as we walk through life, as we, the way we treat people, the way we understand ourselves, that we would honor the gospel, that we would live and think in a manner worthy of what Christ did on the cross, though though we can never replicate it. We thank you for the love that you have for us, that you poured out onto us through him, through his sacrifice.
And this Christmas season, this Christmas Eve and tomorrow for Christmas Day, we pray that the spirit of Christmas would be restored to its proper place. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. During this time, I want to take us to uh, lead us during a time of communion. And so I'm going to ask uh, the ushers to come forward with the elements. And for the rest of you, if, uh, if you can take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 11. And uh, I want to read uh, verses 23 through 28 to set up our hearts. Uh, I do believe the Philippians passage slams right into this. But 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 28. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup, also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so he is to eat of the bread and drink the cup. Now, I've thought about this in the past. Why not something like foot washing as an ordinance for the church? Because Jesus did that and called us to do the same thing. And it's because, as a church, we're not here ultimately to celebrate what we do for Jesus. Uh, We're here to celebrate what he did for us. And every time you take communion, what you're doing is you are proclaiming to yourself, to the church, and to everybody around you, that you are fully convinced that Jesus Christ paid his life for you, that he died and that he rose again and that he is coming again for the second time. That's what happens when you take communion. And so it says a man must examine himself in doing so, so he is to eat of the bread and drink the cup. If you don't believe that about Jesus, you can't take communion. If you're in unrepentant sin, That would be taking communion in an unworthy manner. If you're in any kind of relational strife that is not addressed, obviously we can't address everything in our lives. We pursue peace to the best of our ability. But if you are in that state where you're harboring bitterness or anger or resentment against somebody and refuse to forgive, to take communion in that state would be taking it in an unworthy manner. So this isn't a call to perfection. It's just a call to examine your heart And ask yourself, do I fully, fully believe that Christ died for me and rose again and that he's coming again and that I've repented of my sin and that all the relationships that I have where there's conflict, I'm at least addressing, I'm pursuing. And all the sin that's in me, I'm repentant of, though I'm not free from. And so as we prepare to take, uh, the music is going to be playing. I'm going to ask the rest of us to meditate for a little bit. uh, And then when the music stops, we'll uh, take the elements together.
Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for Christ who gives his life, uh, for the gift of the Holy Spirit who indwells in us. We pray that in our hearts we would celebrate you and worship you, bring honor to you and bring glory to you. We ask that you would bless uh, the rest of this time that we have together as a church. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.